This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. The statewide virtual charter school board denied the application for the nation's first religious charter school. The application by Oklahoma Catholic leaders can be revised and resubmitted in the next 30 days. Ryan, why was this declined by the board? Well, there are still too many questions uh, that the board had, including whether or not they would face personal liability as board members if the board is sued because of their uh, approval or denial of the application. And let's make no mistake about it. They're going to be sued one way or the other. It's just, you know, but they did have questions about their personal liability. But there are also questions about the school itself. The school hasn't ever been, or the proposed school, I should say, has never been clear about its admissions policy, about, you know, what requirements the students would have to meet before they attend there. Um, But I, you know, let's, one, let's, I wish we could just dispense with the ruse that the Catholic Church and the Catholic Archdiocese need money uh, to, to open their own charter school. They've got plenty of money. Uh, but you know, but it's never really been about the school. This is about, about creating a test case that the Catholic archdiocese, and I'm sure that, uh, their, their counterparts across the country, uh, want to move towards the United States Supreme court and get a first amendment ruling that they think would open the door for public funding of religious charter schools across the nation. Uh, right now there's a, I think a strong case that the first amendment prohibits that, I think that they see a a majority on the Supreme Court right now that might be willing to reverse that. So this isn't about a school. This isn't about, you know, 1,500 Catholic kids in rural Oklahoma that don't have access to a charter school. Because, again, if 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 the Catholic Archdiocese wanted to do this, They've got money to do it. They could open it up a private school tomorrow, and they could accept uh, uh, Catholic students. They could have their own religious requirements. They could discriminate against non-Catholics or LGBT or whatever they wanted to do. And they could do that as a private institution using their own dollars. And, and heck, I'd defend their right to do that. Um, but the difference is they want to use my dollars and your dollars and every Oklahoma taxpayer dollars to subsidize their, their essentially their, their church and their school combo. Neva. Uh, that's it. I, I think in a nutshell, you've pretty well described where we are at this point. And I think it, it's important to remember, this has been about 18 months in the making, uh, when the Archdiocese of uh, Oklahoma City, the Diocese of Tulsa, got together with these um, um, scholars, attorneys, and others uh, at Notre Dame. They basically have laid the groundwork, as you say, for what will be the test case on this subject. And Uh, It was uh, a little more than a year ago that they made known their intentions that they were going to file this application, and now here's where we're at. I mean, we've got a board uh, with uh, uh, the largest composition, this five-member board. You've got new members on there who basically uh, have kind of hit the ground with this right in front of them. Um, And I think in terms of uh, the give and take at the board meeting this week and the fact that there was an action the board chair uh, robert franklin he pressed he wanted uh, he said let's quit kicking the can down the road were his words and said let's get on with it and and uh, be up or down on this but the assistant attorney general uh, who came in and provided legal guidance uh, really um, i think uh, kind of set the stage particularly with some of these new members who began to question 
um, some of the things that were being said. One of the things that you alluded to, Ryan, about the fact that they'd be sued. I mean, Robert Franklin said, yes, we're going to be sued. We've been sued before. Um, the question of whether or not they would have uh, a personal or individual board representation, you know, that seemed to be you know, kind of a non-starter. So more questions than answers. And I, then you inject it into the, the uh, board meeting itself, the fact that one of its non-voting members on the board, uh, uh, the superintendent of public instruction, Ryan Walters, was there and basically had to infuse, uh, you know, kind of his press on the situation saying, let's approve this. It needs to happen. Um, and then proceeded to make comments that uh, got direct pushback from the board chair. And, and it was, uh, you know, again, I think w what we saw was uh, the kind of the politically charged atmosphere that comes with this kind of a deal and the fact that when we think about the single probably most pivotal issue I think that hasn't come up very much in this whole conversation is the fact that if we remember back in 2016 with uh, state question 790 there was a straight up and down vote Oklahomans were very clear at that moment in time what they thought about the question of whether or not to use tax dollars for religious institutions and activities and it was resound, It was defeated, I think, 57-43. So we're going to hear a lot more about this, but uh, at some point very soon, I think the board is going to have to make a decision and a vote. Governor Stitt is rearranging his cabinet with the removal of State Superintendent Ryan Walters as his Secretary of Education. Walters' replacement will be OSU Tulsa education professor, Dr. Catherine Curry. Neva, what do you think of Stitt's decision? Well, it's interesting, the timing, um, because uh, the governor made his decision and announcement on Tuesday, and yet Wednesday is when really the shoes dropped and all of the blanks were filled in on what had really occurred. And that was when uh, Senate leader Greg Treat uh, basically said he'd been advised a month ago in a letter from uh, the Attorney General that dual office holding uh, by Ryan Walters, that being the state superintendent and the Secretary of Education, was uh, forbidden uh, according to uh, state law. This was the, uh, this was the uh, opinion of the Attorney General. And so um, I think what we saw kind of when the dust settled was that the governor had time to go out, vet, find an, a new cabinet secretary replacement and get that in order rather than have it uh, kind of out there in the public, you know, kind of the public conversation uh, prematurely. So I think if there have been conversations with lawmakers and others, which you assume happened, they certainly kept that uh, quiet and let this unfold the way it did. But I think, uh, I think whether people want to argue uh, the interpretation and the opinion of this, I mean, it seems pretty clear. I mean, when you look at the Secretary of Education, uh, in that capacity, uh, Ryan Walters was able to hire state employees, unilaterally veto um, rulemaking. Uh, he was able, uh, in his capacity of chairing the uh, Commission for Educational Quality and Accountability, he also had the authority to control expenditures. So, mm -hmm. I mean, those meet the threshold of... Uh, uh, exercising what I think the law calls sovereign power. So um, not not a big surprise when all of those details unfolded. What will be interesting now is the role of the new cabinet secretary and, and what that role will be. I mean, I, I thought it was fascinating that, that uh, Ryan Walters basically 
portrayed this as he and the governor are on the same page, aligned with their ideas of what they want to do with education. And this was a, a worth, uh, uh, a very worthwhile addition, I think was the phrase used, to their team. So uh, we'll see how all of that sorts itself out here in the next few weeks. And she will have to uh, have a Senate confirmation. So this conversation definitely will continue. Ryan. Whether he realizes it or not, the attorney general did Ryan Walters, uh, an enormous favor uh, by you know, sharing that with the president pro, tre- pro temp Greg Treat, uh, and uh, you know then the governor you know withdrawing him as secretary of education. I think all of that did uh, Ryan Walters an enormous favor because if he had come up for a confirmation vote uh, in the Senate, I don't think that he had the votes. And even if he did have the votes, it was going to be very close and very contentious. Um, you know, he likes things that are, you know, close and contentious. I mean, he's a, he's a bull in search of a China closet. So, I mean, he, he might've liked that, but if he had been voted down, uh, and it, well, he likes being the victim too. So maybe he doesn't see it as a favor, but it would have been enormously, uh, embarrassing for him. Uh, it would have been, it would have put the Senate in a very difficult position, uh, of having to go through all of that, especially at the end of session, whenever, uh, every, you know, emotions are high already. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody's looking at the finish line and, you know, crafting a budget and having to deal with these two competing education bills. Um, you know, this is something that's off everybody's plate now. So uh, I don't think that it's a huge surprise, you know, how it came out um, uh, maybe is because I think everybody just assumed that there was going to be a confirmation vote at some point uh, and that you know, Superintendent Walters did not have the votes. You know, it's interesting, too, looking at this new cabinet secretary and her resume. I mean, she's been an OSU a professor, education professor for a number of years, um, certainly has an impressive resume. But one of the things on that that I noticed was that she's the academic director of a of a company called uh, Edpreneur Academy, like entrepreneur Edpreneur, which basically is um, uh, where you pay roughly a thousand dollars for this course. That if you want to learn more about uh, looking into changes in traditional K through 12 education models, or you want to start a school, or you want to be someone who either understands the options out there, school choice, and other things, uh, that certainly aligns with the governor's philosophy, Ryan Walters' philosophy, uh, and the things that they're still uh, very much front and center pushing with school choice and these the, the hope of trying to get some sort of education bill through the legislature this session. So. So it will be interesting to see if they cannot get her, perhaps her nomination through quickly and then have her as a new face, perhaps out at the legislature advocating on some of this education legislation, or maybe she will not be in the mix at all until next year, but it will it will be interesting to watch this. And I think senators might be asking, you know, what kind of independence will Dr. Curry exercise with regard to the governor? Uh, you know, cabinet secretaries under this governor don't have a lot of discretion, uh, but what kind of independence will Dr. Curry exercise with regard to uh, Superintendent Walters? Um, I think that uh, granted, I mean, her, her resume is impressive. The, the ed, edpreneur, I, maybe I need to go take the deal to, <laughs> to learn how it's, to say it. It's a tongue to, twister. To pay the $1,000 to go learn how to say it. Um, but, you know, she talks about things in there called uh, micro schools. I'm interested to know what a micro school is. Um, but, you know, I, I do believe, you know, she 
you know, she'll have the qualifications to get confirmed by the Senate, um, but then it's going to be a matter of, you know, what kind of independence <clears throat> can we expect out of Dr. Curry once she has the position? And that's right. As, this, as the cabinet secretary, she has responsibility for all of these boards and commissions and agencies under her purview if, she's, uh, if she becomes that person on the cabinet. And one of those is the State Board of Education. So um, you would have to assume that there's going to have to be a good working relationship forged between these two because they're, they're roles do uh, mesh and there is that uh, uh, not autonomy uh, with each of them but they have to be working together in concert with the really within concert with the governor and what he's wanting in terms of education. State Superintendent Ryan Walters is threatening to sue the Biden administration if the federal government imposes a rule barring schools and colleges from implementing outright bans on transgender athletes. The announcement was made at a special meeting of the Board of Education. Ryan, would Walters have a case here? I think it would be a very difficult case for him to make. If you look at the Biden rules, uh, you know, of course, they seem to have made folks on both sides of this is issue upset or at least, you know, not, you know, fully happy. Uh, but at, at the outset, at least in Oklahoma, uh, the rules, I, I believe, if they're promulgated and then adopted, will be progress uh, because right now, we have an outright ban on, on any sort of trans athlete uh, uh, competition in the state of Oklahoma. Um, and you know that, that type of across the board discrimination, not only is it wrong, uh, but I think that it's, it's not legally defensible. I do not think that our total ban right now is legal de legally defensible. I think that the uh, proposal here by the Biden administration uh, and then the proposed framework that they're going to give to states and schools, particularly schools that receive federal dollars under Title IX and then have to comply with Title IX, I think that this is probably a much more legally defensible uh, position than the state of Oklahoma's current position, which is an outright ban. So if these rules are adopted, it would mean no more outright ban in the state of Oklahoma. There's still going to be a lot of work to do uh, to, you know, understand, you know, what is, uh, you know, what, you know, what does it mean to participate in athletics? You know, what's fair, what's equal? And, you know, ultimately, how do we how do we promulgate these rules and, and adopt this framework in a way that doesn't discriminate against uh, trans kids uh, and their parents in the state of Oklahoma? Neither. Well, and uh, this is such a big issue because you've, Oklahoma's not the only state to have banned, made, made yeah, uh, 20 legislation. 20. There's 20 of them. Uh, and when you, when you look at this, and I think there's, uh, you know, a number of others that uh, have legislation pending. So it's a big issue. I think you have a lot of uh, folks that have weighed in on it state by state. I mean, uh, Ryan Walter is making the point that uh, that he's going to take it on in Oklahoma is no different than uh, the Florida Education Commissioner who came out and basically said the same thing that it won't fly in Florida um, that they would never allow it and on and on but you have so many other things going on in terms of issues that have either come before the Supreme Court and not been acted on one this week uh, uh, where the court uh, uh, refused to take up um, a, and reinstate a West Virginia law uh, barring uh, uh, transgender athletes from playing on female sports teams in in this instance and um, and but I think it was interesting that Justice Alito basically came out even though the court doesn't uh, explain when they don't uh, uphold um, um, a, a lower court stay he said that this is something that will be required for us to address in the near future so it's coming and um, and I think that when you look at uh, even internationally and nationally, I mean, with the Olympics coming up and the fact that in the swimming world you have the the FINA, the swimming governing body, that has come out and basically you know taken this issue issue head on, um, and uh, and they're basically 
wanting to do that definitively because of the fact that we have 2024, you know, Olympics coming up, and this is going to clearly be a contentious issue there as well. So, you know, at at the end of all of it, when you really look at it, I I think it's interesting that statistically, transgender athletes, I mean, in in one of the reports that was just published earlier this year, um, the statistic was less than, I think it was less than 2% in both instances, both in 13 to 17 year old uh, athletes and 18 to 24 year old athletes, less than 2%, you know, of those athletes are transgender. So, I mean, this is this is an issue that is, uh, you know, taking a lot of oxygen out of a lot of other big conversations, and yet it doesn't seem, when you look at the real numbers and the impact, uh, and the fact that the implications of what the Biden administration wants to do are so um, overarching uh, that I think that one, they won't get it done before the next presidential election in all likelihood because it's such a long extended um, way they have to go about that process, including months of open conversation and people being able to uh, make their comments known uh, to the federal government. So it's going to be interesting to watch, but I think what it does allow for is a lot of folks to make a lot of public comment uh, and for and for people in general to uh, be swayed by some of the information. But most folks in Oklahoma, I think, are not going to be bothered by Governor Stitt uh, and any other elected official coming out and saying that they want to make sure that there is this ban in place in Oklahoma. Well, and Justice Alito's comment, I think, you know, speaks somewhat to what the Biden administration is looking at. They they want to get rid of these total bans. They want to try to protect uh, trans athletes as much as possible, but they want to do it in a legally defensible way should it ever reach the Supreme Court. And there's a question of whether or not these protections actually exist and can be enforced under Title IX. Um, but I don't think that that's what Ryan Walters is concerned with here at all. I don't think that Ryan Walters is concerned with Title IX. I don't think that he's concerned with, uh, you know, having a, a, a very honest and robust conversation with Oklahomans about, you know, trans uh, kids and, and the issues that uh, relate to trans kids. Even if they're a small minority, you know, they, they deserve protection and, and equality. I don't think he's interested in that. I think he's interested in the press release. Um, you know, I think that he sees that any time that he can attach himself – attach himself to something that's attacking trans kids uh, that he believes that that scores him political points. And I said, you know, last week that what we're seeing right now is just kind of this bizarro job application from the superintendent for a job. We don't know what it is yet, but I think that this is just, you know, part of a bullet point in his resume, and it really doesn't have anything to do with his actual belief in the law. Well, and it's interesting, too. I mean, Ryan Walters is $40,000 a year lighter in the in the pocketbook, I mean, having been taken off the cabinet secretary position. So, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what, how that um, how that plays in all of this, because certainly he was very interested, as we know, and we've talked about before on this show, and it's certainly been publicly stated many times, uh, the fact that, uh, that uh, even having the work with the private uh, uh, entity before he, before he took the oath of office, uh, that he planned at that point uh, early on to continue to hold both of those positions, you know, and both of those paychecks. So again, uh, that's uh, oftentimes kind of legislative fodder and out in the in just the uh, general uh, Twitter world probably, but it is something that I think will continue to probably bubble up. The Oklahoma Turnpike Authority is putting a work stoppage on its 15-year, $5 billion access Oklahoma project. 
officials say the this comes from their inability to enter the bond market because of legal matters pending before the state supreme court and a state investigative audit neva what's next for the ota here <laughs> well that's a good question i mean this is a this is a mess um, you know, you've got money that's been expended out of funds, uh, and they basically were moving forward, and now they're kind of at this point where they say, whoa, stop, we're not going to do anything else. And the real issue is Wall Street probably has kind of jerked the chain and said, no more. And so it is, it's a, it's a big problem uh, from the state standpoint of how to, how to kind of sort through this. And we have, for the first time, a, an audit uh, underway or soon to be underway uh, by the auditor and inspector at the direction request of the attorney general. Um, and so that will take months, probably. And so there are so many things on top of the fact that we have many lawsuits still out there. And I think what we've seen is this, what has been described almost from the get-go, this David and Goliath fight, where David appears to have had the had had the, the one shiny stone and have been able to at least put Goliath on the ground at this point. Uh, and so uh, what Tim Gatz and the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority do moving forward, I think they're going to be mired in lawsuits upon lawsuits for quite some time. And I think legislators then are going to be drawn into the conversation of what do we do to, and how can we be helpful legally and other and in other ways to not only kind of change the public face on this and the, and the problems, but also to address the, uh, the challenges that they now have financially with all of this. Right. Well, and thank goodness that audit started even before this announcement because uh, you know it's it's going to be more desperately needed now than ever. Uh, I think that's going to be a critical component to uh, getting the uh, the Turnpike Authority back in the good graces with with Wall Street and the bond market and the ability to to sell bonds uh, and get the revenue that they need to complete these projects. And these projects are important. I mean, this is you know 15 years worth of uh, of projects you know across the state. Uh, but many of them in areas where the infrastructure needs to either be repaired or improved uh, yesterday. Uh, and so we've got a 15-year plan to do that, $5 billion uh, of investment. Um, and then, you know, and then I think, you know, that's you know, 40, you know, just uh, the Tulsa World reports 495 million of that is an expansion of the Gilcrease Expressway in Tulsa. Uh, you know, so a lot of these projects that people have been counting on for, for a very long time now have hit the pause button. Uh, the Turnpike Authority seems to be throwing their hands up in the air and saying, you know, uh, well, how did this happen? Well, according to the, uh, the Seminole County District Judge Tim Olson that was uh, sitting in Cleveland County because the Cleveland County judges recused themselves uh, in that Turnpike Authority case down there over the Open Meetings Act, they made their own bed here. Uh, you know, they, they violated the Open Meetings Act uh, blatantly and willfully. Uh, and that's what has you know, set so much of this in motion. Um, they, there are steps that they could have taken along the way uh, if they hadn't tried to play fast and loose with the Open Meetings Act, uh, if they hadn't you know, potentially used state funds uh, to go purchase up opposition websites uh, so that opposition voices couldn't be uh, uh, aired during the Turnpike debate uh, in Norman. Uh, you know, those, are, those are things that the Turnpike Authority has done over time that's put themselves in a very difficult position, both legally and from a public relations standpoint. The audit right now is, is going to be critical. You know, these things have to happen. Um, and, you know, how the legislature steps in, maybe the legislature steps in and, and does something here. But uh, I don't think folks are going to sit around and say, we've got 15 years worth of road projects that we can just sit on uh, while the current administration at the Turnpike Authority figures it, 
uh, figures itself out. And I think the question is, can you sort out the the projects that aren't um, the ones that have been the most focused on, these toll roads, the challenges, particularly in Cleveland County, McLean County, those areas where it all of this really kind of ramped up late last year. And, and the other component to this is there is a legislative bill moving through the session. It, it's made it through the House. Uh, it uh, passed out of a Senate committee earlier this week that basically changes the composition of the uh, of the, of the uh, transport of uh, the uh, Turnpike Authority, and it makes it um, kind of as some other boards and commissions we know, where the pro tem, the speaker, and the governor have equal equal representation of the people that they can nominate and put on that. Uh, uh, on that commission. So that would be a seismic change from where they have been in the past, and it would be something that um, uh, we'll see whether or not uh, it makes it makes it through. There have been, I think there were some uh, amendments in the Senate, so it'll have to go back to the House. So it's, it's not a done deal, but it certainly seems like lawmakers are using this, at least at this point, to perhaps make a statement that we want to influence some change positively going forward. Mm-hmm. A new poll shows former President Trump's favorability rating has dropped below 50% in Oklahoma. While Trump still enjoys 70% favorability by Republicans, a majority of Democrats and independents have an unfavorable opinion of him. Neva, what could this mean for Trump in next year's elections? Well, I don't know what it means next year. It is interesting, though, when you look at this poll. I mean, uh, it it's, comes from the latest edition of the Sooner Survey, and um, the president of uh, CHS uh, that... Uh, uh, conducts these, this poll and has done it for I think more than 30 years. Uh, Pat McFerrin's been in the in in the business uh, is something where he's he's watched with great interest and showed through the through the years uh, the changing public sentiment of uh, Oklahomans. In this instance, what we've seen is in his estimation what he called it was. Uh, that this relationship between Oklahoma Republicans and Donald Trump is, in his words, complicated, and I think that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good summation of it. Because what you see is, I mean, if if you were to look at Republicans alone, extracting them out of the the poll, um, and ask if uh, if their primary for the presidential primary was held today, who would they vote for? I mean, you have 38% for Donald Trump, you have 29% for uh, uh, De- uh, Ron DeSantis, and then it drops down from there. The others, uh, Nikki Haley, uh, uh, former Vice President Pence, uh, Ted Cruz, uh, former Ambassador, Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, all of those, you know, under 20% when you take the rest of kind of the mix that's out there in conversation. But the bottom line is, when you then ask these same folks, um, will you definitely vote for Donald Trump uh, in the presidential primary? It's 30%. It, would you maybe or probably vote? It's a 30%. And then you, you have 18% that are saying they definitely will not vote for Donald Trump in the, in the presidential primary, and about 19% saying that they'd vote, potentially vote for somebody other than Donald Trump. So, you know, at the end of it, Donald Trump is still highly popular in Oklahoma. He's still going to win when he's on the ballot in all likelihood in Oklahoma. What we've seen is from 2020, when he had the high number of 66% favorability in the state, he's now down to uh, right at 50% if you take all Oklahomans, Republican, Democrat, and independent alike. So um, I don't know that it's a big surprise, but I think when you 
when you look at the fact that, uh, I mean, it's hard to imagine, but we're only 46 weeks mm-hmm. away from the presidential uh, primary election here in Oklahoma next year on March the 5th. So we're going to have this conversation ongoing nonstop. And I think also I think it's important for the listeners to know that that this polling took place after it was uh, understood and likely that the president was uh, going to be indicted uh, by the Manhattan uh, district attorney. So um, this is very recent, very recent polling numbers and certainly something that I think uh, uh, in general, most people find polls fascinating, but they are just a snapshot in time. And that's where we see ourselves today in Oklahoma with respect to this, quote, complicated relationship with uh, Donald Trump and the Oklahoma Republicans. Ryan. And, and I don't have the, the CHS memo nemo, uh, you know, that, that you've got over there, Neva, but um, I'm wondering on these cross tabs, uh, if you start to look at you know, they say that these are their their uh, GOP uh, registered voters, um, but what are their likelihood of voting? And you know, that I think changes quite a bit. And, and my assumption would be the higher likelihood that they're going to show up at the primary election uh, next March. And you know, thanks for the buzzkill uh, on this on this <laughs> Friday <laughs> that we're uh, you know just you know forty. What did you say? Forty six weeks away? Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh, uh, forty six away from Less a presidential a preferential primary uh, in Oklahoma. If you're I think that those voters that are more likely to show up and we've seen that, you know, that changes elections in Oklahoma. Uh, You know, it's not just a matter of, you know, throwing uh, a net out there and seeing what all registered voters think, because all registered voters don't even show up. Uh, You know, we had, I think, less than 10 percent turnout in the most recent uh, uh, municipal runoff elections uh, in in Oklahoma County or maybe right at 10 percent, you know, 20 percent around for state question 820. Um, and we even even back in November, uh, you know, you know, very abysmal turnout. So, uh, you know, who shows up at this election? My sense is that if they're really motivated to show up at that presidential uh, primary in March of 2024, they're probably going to be Trump voters. I think that he probably wins and those more likely to vote uh, voters. Now, that's just my assumption. And, you know, uh, everybody knows I, I've been wrong before, but that's <laughs> that's what I would think. And, you know, when you look at those numbers, it's 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 important, too, to look at not only Donald Trump's numbers, but Joe Biden's numbers, mm-hmm. because this was a statewide survey. I mean, Joe Biden's strongly favorable number is 12 percent. I mean, uh, that's versus Donald Trump's 30 percent. I mean, on strongly favor, when you combine strongly and somewhat, it, it improves for both, about 30 percent for Biden and, and uh, 49, this 49, 50 percent for Trump. But, I mean, that's really, that's really the backdrop that all of the 24 elections will, um, will be dictated by in terms of where public sentiment is in Oklahoma and presidential years have the highest turnout typically and also are influenced largely by what's going on nationally in terms of the conversation. So um, I, think, I think folks follow this with some interest because it is a tracking to see where things are going and if there is some subtle or a more significant change that appears to be on the horizon. Unlikely things can happen. The Thunder just made the playoffs. You know, uh, Biden could get that number up over 20. Who knows? Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by Oklahoma State Medical Association, physicians dedicated to providing and increasing access to health care for all Oklahomans. More on its vision and mission at okmed.org.